Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is the Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Diana O'Carroll and Dave Ansell. And let's begin by taking a look at some of this week's top science news stories. Diana, what have you got for us? Yeah, big news this week about the ability of Australopithecus afarensis to walk like a human. Researchers have found that this species of early hominin had rigid arched feet. And this means that afarensis would have spent a great deal of time walking only on two feet, which is just a step away from full bipedalism. Now, researcher Carol Ward and colleagues from the University of Missouri have come to this conclusion over a fourth metatarsal. Now, that's the Wayne Rooney footbone, for those that don't know. Uh, found in Hadar, a well-dug fossil site in Ethiopia, this metatarsal is a perfect example of a bone which was lacking in the famous afarensis specimen known as Lucy. So publishing in the journal Science, the researchers think that this bone points towards arch feet because its two ends are twisted in relation to each other. And now that means that one articular surface where it meets the cuboid, that's one of the more sort of lumpy bones that makes up the body of the foot sits at a different angle to the surface where it meets the phalanx, which is essentially in the first row of toe bones. Now, this means that the foot was very unlikely to have just been flat and it would have been quite well adapted to the push-off motion that's required in walking or even running. And it fits in well with what we already know of afarensis' hips and spine, which do suggest quite upright walking, something which a chimpanzee can't do as efficiently. Because I was going to say feet and hands are really rare in these kinds of fossils, aren't they? Because for some reason, they well, probably because the bones are really small, they're very rarely found. Exactly that. They're just so small. Um, and it's usually uh, sort of the, the thick parts of the skull and you know, occasionally you get some ribs, but spine that sort of turn up. Um, but walking on two feet um, is, is something quite rare to find about 3.7 and 2.9 million years ago when Afarensis lived. Um, but it could have made regular tool use possible. We don't know for certain that Lucy would have used stone tools, um, but there was a study that came out last year in Nature by Shannon McFerrin and colleagues, which did seem to suggest that tool use was going on 3.4 million years ago. Now, this would make perfect sense if you have uh, an early hominin who's walking around with two feet and has two hands bare. Had people previously suggested that Lucy and those like her would have walked upright, or had they thought that perhaps she did a bit of both? Yeah, I think they, they didn't think she would have walked upright quite to the level that this foot bone suggests. I mean, that as I said, her spine has the kind of double curve in it that the human spine has, which suggests she could be quite upright. And also the hips um, are sort of indicative of, of bipedalism. But this is the real nail in the coffin. It, it really does drive the message home. Exactly. looks like yeah. that was the case. Thanks, Diana. Dave? There's been a new way of seeing inside the, any body or inside flesh, and it's been developed, it's just using normal visible light. Now, light's a great way of imaging and things, we do it all the time, and it's great for probing biological material. And it's also used in therapies such as photodynamic therapy, where cancer patients are injected with a chemical that only becomes poisonous when it's exposed to light. That way you can minimise the effects of chemotherapy and only poison the bits of the body which have actually gone wrong in the cancer. The problem is that despite the fact that flesh doesn't absorb that much light, it does scatter it very, very strongly. Which you'll have noticed, you ever shined a torch on your hand, instead of seeing the light go straight through so you can see the torch, just your whole hand starts glowing red. This means that focusing light on something more than a couple of millimetres below your skin is, is virtually impossible. However, all light paths are reversible. So if you put a light bulb in the tumour 
and worked out how the light was leaving the body from that tumour and then reversed its path, it would all then get sort of refracted and reflected off all the tissue and stuff inside your body and all get focused back I get on it. The so you, you can work out what is getting in the way to scatter the light the way it is. If you reversed that, you'd get back to an original picture of what the light was like before it got scattered all over the yeah, place. Yeah, and so it all gets focused back to where the light bulb is. The problem uh, is Easy to say, putting, tricky to do. How, how do you do that then? Putting a light bulb in isn't exactly non-invasive, so you might as well chop the tumour out. Um, now, Zhao Zhu and colleagues at Washington University have managed to get around this problem. They focus ultrasound on the area of interest, and then they shine light on it whose frequency changes in time with the ultrasound. So the frequency goes up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. They then look at the light scattering out of the body again. Then they use some clever optical tricks so that they build a hologram only from the light which is moving in time with the ultrasound. That's amazing. So in other words, you use the ultrasound to make the tissue they're focusing on move a little bit. This will modulate or make the light waves stretch and shrink a little bit. So if you just look at the light which is stretching and shrinking a little bit, you know it's the bit coming just from the tumour. That's right. And that means that you can then use this hologram to reverse the original light. And so you can produce a great big shot of light, which then gets focused back onto the tumour or whatever you're looking at. And what's the optical readout? What does the person who would be imaging the tumour, what, what are they going to see? Would it build a sort of 3D reconstruction on a screen for them? Well, you can do various things. One of them is you can move the focus of the, of the ultrasound and then you can essentially sort of build a picture up of what it looks like to the laser light. And you can build a picture up using light. So that might tell you information you can't get from the ultrasound. You could also fill some with this photodynamic therapy type stuff and then you could actually destroy the tumour where you're focusing the ultrasound on or you could put some kind of fluorescent marker in the body which only fluoresces when something interesting is going on and then you just look at the parts of the body which are fluorescing and do all sorts of beautiful, interesting things like that. Can they see right through the body, or how deep can they go? I've seen pictures from sort of two or three centimetres down, which is far better than you get conventionally. Certainly is. Thank you, Dave. Now, uh, if you're a big fan like me of eating oily fish, then you're probably doing your eyesight a big long-term favour, it turns out, because scientists at Harvard Medical School have discovered that the omega-3 fatty acids that are found in the fish can block the damage that's done to the retina by diseases like macular degeneration. They've found... Also, the gene pathway, which is responsible for this protective effect. And from Harvard, to tell us how it works, here's Lois Smith. The problem that I have been trying to solve is one of what's called retinopathy, which is abnormal blood vessel growth in the eye. This occurs in three major diseases in premature infants, in children. There's retinopathy of prematurity. In this case, abnormal blood vessels grow and cause retinal detachment. That is, the retina, which is the light-sensitive tissue in the eye, comes off the normal mooring and children go blind. In the middle-aged or working-age population, diabetic retinopathy causes the same problem. In the elderly population, there's a disease called age-related macular degeneration. There's also abnormal blood vessel growth, which can bleed and cause blindness. Taken together, these three diseases are a major cause of blindness. And what are you doing to try to understand what unites them in terms of the pathogenesis, the the way these diseases occur? There are two parts. One is there's first loss of normal vessels that causes oxygen starvation. And then the oxygen starvation stimulates the production of chemicals that call in this pathologic or abnormal blood vessel growth. So I've been trying to understand basic pathways that cause this disease process, both vessel loss 
and then abnormal blood vessel proliferation. And what's been the experimental method? What are you actually doing? I've developed a method in mice. And in this model system, we expose mice to high levels of oxygen and then bring them out into room air. And the blood vessels in the eye first disappear and then come back, roaring back in this pathologic form because it's in a mouse. We can do genetic manipulation. And by doing that and then subjecting them to this oxygen, we can find which gene pathways are involved in the disease process. And presumably also whether different treatments or interventions work and in what context. In other words, which gene pathways, those treatments, which we know exist but don't yet know how they work, we get an insight into how they do work. Absolutely, that's true. In this case, I was very interested in looking at omega-6 fatty acids and omega-3 fatty acids. So the omega-6 fatty acids are the kind that are found in hamburger, basically, and the omega-3 are found in fish or a Japanese-type diet. So we looked at the difference in these two diets to determine whether or not by changing the ratio of lipids that you ingest, whether or not that would have an effect on this proliferative disease, that is the production of these abnormal blood vessels. Because if you look at the epidemiology, if you look at populations of humans, what they eat and who gets what, people who do have a fish-dominated diet tend to fare much better and they're also at much lower risk of getting these retinopathies compared with people who are the hamburger eaters. There's been one study in age-related macular degeneration that did suggest that and we have been working with that group at the National Eye Institute to provide the fundamental scientific basis for that process. Yes, that's true. And in this study, what we're looking for is what metabolite, that is what breakdown product really causes this beneficial effect and what are the enzymes or what are the molecules within our body that create the breakdown product. Some of the enzymes are very, very commonly inhibited uh, with over-the-counter drugs. That is, there's one that's called cyclooxygenase or COX, and COX inhibitors include aspirin and ibuprofen. So these are drugs that many people take, and we wanted to be sure that the metabolic product that caused the beneficial effect was not blocked by taking something as simple as aspirin. And put my mind at rest and tell me that it's not, please. It's not. (laughs) You can do both. You can take aspirin or ibuprofen and still take omega-3 fatty acids and have the beneficial effect of both. Which is a massive relief given the huge contribution aspirin is making to saving lives from stroke and heart disease and maybe even preventing Alzheimer's disease as well. But if it's not impacting on those pathways, what are these fatty acids doing to prevent people getting retinopathy then? It's going through a different pathway that's called lipoxygenase or LOX. And this pathway produces a specific metabolite called 4-HDHA, which provides the beneficial effects. And interestingly enough, one of these effects is through an enzyme called PPAR gamma, which is what drugs to help improve insulin sensitivity and diabetes also activates. So the implication of this is that by taking an increased level of omega-3 fatty acids, that we're increasing insulin sensitivity and diabetes as well. So now that you know this, now you know the pathway involved, does this mean that you can prevent the depletion of oily fish in the sea that we love to eat to a certain extent by producing some kind of 
molecule which will be very targeted at this problem of retinopathy and can exploit the same effect. That's exactly what we're interested in pursuing next. And yes, that's our hope and expectation. Although it may still be better, instead of depleting the fish in the sea, to have algae make the omega-3 fatty acids that we can still take. It may be simpler to take the precursor than it is to take the metabolic product. But I think we can do it without depleting fish. Can algae do that? How easy is it to get the algae to do what the fish do for us at the moment? Actually, they are the original source because algae produce it and then the fish eat it and we then eat the fish. So it's quite simple to have them do that. Mm. I think I'll stick with the oily fish. I think it's probably tastier than eating the algae. But fascinating, I just did not know that the essential omega-3 fatty acids come from algae, not the fish. That was Dr Lois Smith. She's from Harvard Medical School and she published the work you've just been hearing about in the journal Science Translational Medicine this week. Diana. Fascinating stuff. Well, this week, scientists in China have identified an environmentally friendly way of making acrylic acid. Typically, acrylic acid is derived from propylene, so ultimately it comes from crude oil. And over the years, it's become a very important industrial material used in everything from paints, glues, fixing treatments and textiles. More than a billion kilos of the stuff are produced each year for industry. Now, Wei Ji Ji and colleagues at Nanjing University have found an efficient way of making it from lactic acid, which most of us know as the acid which makes your muscles ache during exercise. But lactic acid is a better starting material than propylene because it can be readily made by bacteria in huge vats, eating biomass. So reporting in ACS Catalysis, G and his team have cited a new catalyst which allows lactic acid to be converted into acrylic acid at low temperatures. And if you can promote this reaction at low temperatures, then it means less energy or less expense is required to keep the reaction going. Now they call the catalyst an NAY zeolite, which is because it's a Y type and it's called that because of its pore size, sodium absorbent. Now, cat litter is also an example of an absorbent zeolite. It's not a catalyst, though, is it? Or is it? I don't know. Neutralizing nasty nips, perhaps. <laughs> well, some types of um, sort of diast. No, I can't say it now. Diatomous cat litter is actually a, a kind of catalyst and it absorbs the, the wee. Um, and during this two-stage process um, of the NAY zeolite, what it does is to dehydrate the alcohol from the lactic acid, that's C3H6O3, and it produces acrylic acid, which is C3H4O2. And the zeolite in this case has pores which can hold and exchange sodium cations in solution. Now they actually add some alkali phosphates and reactants to the mix to get it going, but what they think is happening is that the catalyst helps release a proton from the lactic acid and helps it react with a reagent, producing acrylic acid. And it's got quite an impressive yield as well, of about 58.4%. Big step forward. So now we can have more acrylic costumes for you to wear in the office, <laughs> Diana. Uh, you wish. <laughs> Well, here's a way to take some of the pain out of the rehab that people should have if they have a heart attack or cardiac surgery. Um, the UK government has set a target of 75% of people should, if they have a heart attack, come to a series of rehab sessions afterwards because this sort of intervention can help people to regain their confidence after they've had some kind of cardiac event. It can also help to intervene in lifestyle factors that can minimise the risk of having another heart attack and therefore, all told, it can make a significant 
significant improvement in terms of people's quality of life afterwards. The problem is the attendance is deplorable, is about 30%. And this is not just a problem in this country, all over the world. Uh, we see this in countries that offer these kinds of rehab uh, opportunities. And in some countries, it's largely because of geography that this happens. If you look at countries such as Australia, where people may live in the middle of nowhere, access to a hospital where these things are usually offered is not trivial. And there's a researcher at the University of Technology, Queensland University of Technology, that's Charles Warringham. And I spoke with him this week because he's published a lovely paper in the journal PLOS One, in which he outlines a strategy they've developed to use smartphones, which have been reprogrammed, to help the person do their rehab out in the community. And how it works is that they've taken some smartphones, they reprogram them so that they run software, so they can connect a heart monitoring pad up to the phone, and it also uses the GPS system built into the phone. And when the person then does their exercises, the cardiac trace from the patient, and they've tested seven patients so far, one of whom was a country and western singer who couldn't actually attend the rehab because he was on tour at the time, but the data from each patient is beamed back in real time to the lab where a technician who's trained in monitoring what the tracings are supposed to look like is able to follow the person's heart response to their exercise because they can see how much the person's moving using the GPS. And what they found is that people found this extremely useful. They got equivalent scores in terms of people's improvement in fitness, lifestyle changes, depression scores and their sense of well-being compared with people who do actually go to the hospital-based sessions. And the patients loved it because right Rather than sitting on a boring treadmill or exercise bike in a room indoors in a hospital, they're actually doing this out in the street. And they're saying that this could be rolled out much more widely rather than just the seven patients they've done because the, the, the software is not hard to write for the phone. But also um, by using other functionalities built into these phones, like the accelerometers, this is the way of measuring whether they're tipped left and right so it knows which way to show you the picture on the screen, for example. You can use the same technology in the phone to work out how a person is moving. So if you've got a person who who's had a stroke, you can analyse their gait and how well they're walking. And therefore, you can give them physiotherapy advice remotely. So it's a really good way to reach people in the community without having to drag them into hospital, which I think is a terrific use of new technology to move the world forward. Actually, incidentally, there, there is a longer interview with Charles Warringham. If you want to catch up and listen to him talking about this, it's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash specials. If you look up Charles Warringham's thing there, you can listen to him talking about it. Now for something a bit different. New, thinner, more flexible superconducting cables have been developed. Superconducting materials are materials whose electrical resistance drops to completely zero when they're cooled far enough. There are two major different types. There are low temperature superconductors which work below about minus 263 degrees Celsius or 10 degrees above absolute zero. These are often conventional metals and they're easy to bend um, but you need immensely good insulation and liquid helium and things to keep them cold which makes them very very impractical for anything other than something like an MRI scanner. And then there are high temperature superconductors which can work up to around 77 degrees above absolute zero which is far easier to achieve. It's liquid nitrogen temperatures which you slosh around in physics labs all the time. These would be ideal for carrying current, but unfortunately they are all brittle ceramics, so similar physically to a china teacup, which makes making cables out of them very, very difficult. They're not going to bend easily. They're not going to bend easily. The only way to make them at all flexible is to use incredibly thin pieces of superconductor, which makes them just about flexible enough. Despite this, most superconducting cables are still so brittle they have to be wound around large formers, sort of metres across, making them very, very difficult to feed through some kind of tubing or ducting anywhere you want to install them. 
Now, Danko van der Laan has improved this significantly by using a slightly different superconductor called gadolidium barium copper oxide, or GBCO, whose superconducting properties are no better than the other standard IBCO, but it degrades much more slowly when it's bent slightly. This has allowed him to wind the superconducting tapes around a copper form that's only about 6mm in diameter. This means the cable can bend around much smaller circles. They've managed to successfully bend it around a diameter of about 25cm, while still being able to carry a current of 1200 amps. Gosh, that's a lot. (laughs) So would this work then if you were to industrially try and apply this? So you've got this material now which will bend around corners and things. So would you use it by putting it in another tube that could carry, say, liquid nitrogen to keep it very cold? So you'd have a very small cable but capable of carrying an enormous current, um, but it would be have to be ensheathed in something that was capable of being very cold. Yeah, that's right. You then have to um, put some liquid nitrogen pipes around it and then possibly some insulation around it. But all, in liquid nitrogen pipes and insulation can all be made flexible, so that's not a major problem. Just this single cable is carrying out about half the power of one of the big, you know, huge 400 kilovolt cables. So it's a really serious amount of power you could put through this if you insulated it well enough. And this could possibly make it practical for installing it in things like ships or aircraft, which the US military is very interested in, so they can make their ships electric powered. So you have a huge generator and still use quite a thin, thin cable to get down to a big, possibly even superconducting uh, motor underneath, which saves lots of weight and means your ships are a lot faster. And if you'd like to read up on anything else we've covered so far this week, the references and transcripts for each of the news stories we've discussed are online and they're at thenakedscientists.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientists News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.